think we all need to mature and evolve in our conversation to the realization that while our individual identities do matter, this is not to minimize them, we are paying too little attention right now to our common needs and common responsibility to be keepers of the greater American story. And that is what I speak to. Welcome to a movement of kindness and empathy. You're listening to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. Embarking on a mission to unite our city under the banner of compassion, we're one among 440 cities around the globe standing together to build a more compassionate world. Now introducing the man leading the charge, your host, Will Rucker. Welcome to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I'm Will Rucker, and this is not just another episode. This is a very special edition of our podcast. We've got presidential candidate Marianne Williamson joining us for this, this episode. And I'm so excited to talk to you, Marianne. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. So I've got to start with this question. I start with it for every guest, and it's our foundational question. How do you define compassion? To me, it's an aspect of the face of love. There's a line in The Course in Miracles where it says, this course does not aim at teaching the meaning of love, for that is beyond what can be taught. It aims at removing the barriers to the awareness of love's presence. I think that love's presence is something that we experience, and I think words are inadequate to define such an essential quality. Love, compassion, mercy, justice, all those things to me are different aspects of the face of God, actually. And ladies and gentlemen, this has been Compassion. I'm just kidding. That is such a phenomenal answer. And I mean, I expect nothing less from you. Uh, why president? I know. Why president? Well, uh, there is nothing like uh, a campaign, the American presidency, to platform ideas and to offer the American people the opportunity for an agenda that is otherwise not present within the political landscape. And I believe that my agenda, unlike the agenda of any other candidate in this race, is that which reflects the will of the American people. The majority of Americans, both Republican and Democrat, say they want universal health care. The majority of Americans, both Republican and Democrat, say that they want tuition-free college. The majority of Americans, both Republican and Democrat, <clears throat> want common-sense gun safety laws. So this idea that we need a massive infusion of economic hope and opportunity into the life of the average American, which once again is not the agenda of any other candidate, speaks to the reality of the majority of Americans. And if nobody else is going to say that, I am. If nobody else is going to stand up and say, give me the levers of power, I'll do it, I will. And one of the things I have learned in my experience is there's this kind of Wizard of Oz quality. This idea that, oh, those who are part of the political system have some magical power and they know what to do. Well, if anything, we should tear that curtain down. <clears throat> um, I don't um, run as someone uh, who has had a career ensconced in the car that drove us into this ditch. And I reject the notion that only one of them can lead us out of this ditch. Um, the political class in America, the corporatists, those who are basically obeisant to the short-term uh, profit maximization goals of major U.S. corporations. It is baked into the cake now that the American government works in such a way as to perpetuate and maintain that system. That system will not disrupt itself. We need somebody to come in from the outside who says my qualification is not to maintain and perpetuate such a dysfunctional and unjust system. My qualification is to name it and 
when I'm in there, if I'm in there, to actually disrupt it, and that's why I'm running. And the reason I have you here is not just to say, hey, folks, Marianne Williamson is on the podcast. It's because I believe in your candidacy. Oh, thank you. I believe in you, and I, I agree that we need radical change. I don't think what we've done is enough, and I actually think it's insulting to people to say that it's been enough. Oh, thank you. I'm, I, I, and that's how I believe many, many, millions of people feel. Um, the citizens of every other advanced democracy have universal health care. The citizens of every other advanced democracy have tuition-free college and tech school. Other democracies have free child care and um, paid family leave and guaranteed sick pay and guaranteed living wage. We have been trained to expect too little. We've been trained to limit our political imaginations. So that you're right, at this point, we're supposed to be grateful for crumbs. Yeah. In the richest country in the world, to not have the things which just provide for the minimum of a life in which people can thrive. If they work hard, they can make it. That should be the American dream, that if you work hard, you can make it. But for the majority of Americans, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, if you cannot absorb a $400 unexpected expenditure, if you live with debt, we have one in four uh, Americans live with medical debt. So many people in this country live with chronic debt. It's crippling. And particularly when you think of these young people with these college loans, I can't even imagine what it would have been like in my 20s to live with tens of thousands of dollars worth of debt, and then we wonder where the mental health crisis comes from. No, people's lives are falling apart in this country. And I really agree and appreciate what you said, because the system is gaslighting us. It's like, no, things are really getting better. They're getting better in an incremental way. They're getting better, better way too little, way too slowly. We are six inches from the cliff. And when people say to me, oh, Marianne, you know, we have to be careful because the fascists are at the door. I'm doing this because I realize the fascists are at the door. But I agree with Franklin Roosevelt, who said that we wouldn't have to worry about a fascist takeover as long as democracy delivered on its promises. And right now, our democracy is not delivering on its promises. And that's why I think uh, it would be a really good idea to make me president. Yeah. So you've mentioned on the campaign trail that you've been essentially invisibilized. Mm -hmm. And I want you to speak not to your experience, but to the millions of people, the teenagers in high school, the young kid that's in the elementary school class that feels invisible. How do you ensure that they feel seen? What, what can you tell them to let their light shine? And you have a, a special quote about that, too. Well, I, you know, when you talk about making young people feel that they're not invisible, I think that what my campaign does is to see them. The, the young people in America, they don't have health care. They find it very difficult to find housing. There's a housing crisis. Accessible housing for students is so difficult now. They have such a difficult time accessing higher education. You know, in California, one in five uh, students at community colleges in California live out of their car. So I think the, the way that uh, uh, young people would feel less invisible with my presidency is that you're not invisible to me. And you would see me working every single day, whether it's a cancellation of the college loan debt, whether it has to do with uh, providing for tuition-free college and tech school, universal health care, and so forth. As far as younger people are concerned, even younger than that, I want to start a department of children and youth. I would have a very child-focused administration. We need to move a lot more resources into the life of children under, under 10 years old. No, I absolutely agree, and I think that that message resonates with young people, and they hear that. 
But I want to go deeper than just the politics of it. Okay. I want to go to the humanity because people feel hopeless. And of course, your candidacy is one of hope, but we're still a year out before we even really get to an election. What can they do right now in this moment to, to feel seen, to cling to hope, to just feel that, th that life is worth living? Well, hope is born of participating in hopeful solutions. You know, you only get in life what you give. So we can't just sit here and be passive and hope will feel hopeful. It doesn't work that way. It's when you yourself use your power. People say to me, how do I find my power? You find your power by using your power on behalf of other people. Now, when you said it's deeper than politics, it's our humanity, the problem is that in the modern era, politics has become disconnected from our humanity. We need to put our humanity back in there. And I think uh, political activism, taking part in a political campaign, if you see a candidate, you say, that's what I want. Whether it's me or anyone else, participate, participate. You can't just, oh, I hope she wins, or I hope he wins. It has to be, no, I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to donate. I'm going to uh, do call phone banking. I'm going to get on their website and see what it is that they need. Um, here in Nevada, where you and I are, um, Nevada is a early primary state. I'll be um, opening an office here soon. And uh, it's a big, big deal. So nobody in an early primary state, whether it's Nevada, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Michigan, any of them, can say, I don't have any power. Because actually, as a voter in these states, you do. You have a lot of power. But you have to use it to feel it. Now, you've been on Oprah a number of times. Everyone knows Oprah. And you've, you've been a best-selling author. I mean, you've done it all, really. Kind of. And yet and still, you still have to fight for the visibility that your candidacy deserves. How do you navigate that on an emotional level? Well, it's interesting because in my career before politics, I did not have to fight for visibility. Oprah, as you said, basically gave it to me. And uh, then I was able to uh, build on what she provided with her generosity. And uh, I never felt invisible before. I'm invisibilized now in ways that I think should be disturbing, actually, to any American. I was watching um, uh, Joe Scarborough this morning on Morning Joe on MSNBC, and it was a report about how there's a lot of nervousness in the Democratic establishment about President Biden's readiness and fitness for running. And then the other gentleman said, yeah, but the problem is there aren't any alternatives. Well, excuse me. Excuse me, actually. Hello, I'm here. Uh, at 10% among Democrats and among Gen Z and Democrats, 27%, uh, just seven points behind the president at 34. So, and another thing is that I, I've, the, the one I've heard this last week or so is when people do refer to the president possibly debating his opponents, and they're, they're clearly talking points because they use the same ones a lot. So the one I've heard this last week is, um, I think the president should debate Robert Kennedy and whomever else might be running. Wow. Whomever else might be running. So, yeah, it's, um, it's actually not a good thing. Take away that it's me. Um, I remember when I first announced that I was running, I heard a young woman, a pundit on one of those news programs, saying, well, I think we should just treat it like she's not there. Let's just pretend, let's just ignore her and pretend she's not there. And I thought, yeah, good luck with that. Well, that's exactly what they've done. Blackballed on... Um, uh, mainstream television shows, my poll numbers higher than certain Republicans who are on those shows all the time. Now, from my political perspective, this means I'm doing something right, 
that uh, the system that my candidacy does undercut is so adamant on keeping me out of the conversation. Um, but it's not good for democracy. The American people should have a chance to hear uh, the agenda, which is anti-corporatist, which is unabashedly progressive, which says that <clears throat> short-term corporate uh, profit maximization should not come before the safety and health and well-being of the American people. That's just true. Economics is not more important than democratic and humanitarian values. And I think really focusing on democratic and humanitarian values is how to create a thriving economy. What we have now is a thriving economy for 20% of Americans, and that's simply not good enough. And none of us should find it good enough, none of us should find it tolerable, and all of us should demand that uh, we hear what other options might be available. And that's not a radical idea. No, that's what's interesting. All of the positions that I stand for um, are considered moderate positions in every other advanced democracy. Um, I mean, love is radical. The principles of the, de of the uh, Declaration of Independence are radical in that it is positive that all men are created equal. Um, so to be radically American is a good thing if it means you're standing for those principles, that governments are instituted to secure our rights, inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'm sorry, a person with no health care, a person who has to work three jobs, uh, people who are uh, working and at the same time having to live out of their car, you cannot tell me that government is securing their right uh, to pursue happiness. It's just not happening. And we need to admit that to ourselves and do something about it. As we get ready to wrap up here, I want to ask about the black community. Okay. And I also, I'm going to frame this in two ways. Okay. One is how do you deal with factions? So you've got the factions of the LGBT plus, you've got the black community, you've got unions, you've got the Jewish community, and everyone's vying for what, what are you going to do for us? The second part of this is how do you show relevancy in those communities? I was watching an interview and basically someone told you to learn how to do the electric slide. <laughs> And it wasn't enough that you had I written would, a book. I would if I could. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, here's why I bring that up. Because you've literally written a book where you're addressing the issues that matter most to each of these communities. But yet they want you to be performative yeah, in order exactly to fit right. in. So how do you deal with navigating the different factions while preaching a message of unity okay. and running a candidacy where you have to be authentically you? You know, I think as Americans we need to reclaim our first principles. And one of our first principles is e pluribus unum, out of many, one. We are different colors, different races, different ethnicities, different cultures, different sexes, sexuality, gender, uh, religion, everything. And that's a beautiful thing. However, e pluribus unum means out of many, one, that we are these different things, that everybody gets to be whoever they want to be, do whatever they want to do, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, and yet we all pledge fealty to these common principles. Black American, Jewish American, white American, gay American, we have become so concentrated on the black, white, Jew, Christian, Muslim, gay, straight, that we're forgetting the American part. So identity politics has a shadow side. <clears throat> Those individual identities are important. This is not to minimize them. But ultimately, I think particularly at this point, we have to talk about what we're going to do as Americans. Ultimately, what your children and grandchildren need are what my children and grandchildren need. We have to come out of our silos right now, actually. So I'm not only speaking to, oh, what this demographic, this is what they want me to say. I'm not going there. 
Um, and I think people respect that. Um, I, I think we all need to mature and evolve in our conversation to the realization that while our individual identities do matter, this is not to minimize them, we are paying too little attention right now to our common needs and common responsibility to be keepers of the greater American story. And that is what I speak to. Now, in terms of some of the performative elements, you know, I think it's really significant or important to honor who you are and to honor where you are. And part of that is your age. I'm not the young and hip one, young, hip, young person anymore. You know, that's not, not who I am. And I personally find it kind of sad, kind of pathetic when people try to be who they no longer are. Um, I honor that, you know, some people are still really young and got it going on in those ways. I have it going on in another way. And uh, I feel I'm not going to try to play a, you know. I saw Vivek Ramaswamy out there with his shirt off and he's doing tennis and Bobby Kennedy with his shirt off and, you know, doing push-ups. If they keep that up, I'm doing a yoga video. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good idea. Don't don't tempt me. <laughs> Let's do some meditation here. You know? Yeah, yeah, meditation and yoga. That's kind of maybe not such a bad idea. Yeah. Okay. No, that that makes total sense. So the the last piece of this is spirituality okay. because you are a spiritual teacher. You're a spiritual person, and I even consider you otherworldly because to be as radically rooted in love as you are in this culture is otherworldly. So how do you merge faith with politics, and, and is that okay still? I wrote a book called Healing the Soul of America that came out in the late 90s, and that was my question, and that's what I wanted to discover. And I found, well, Gandhi already did that, and then Martin Luther King traveled to India to study the principles of Gandhi and nonviolence and bring them back to the United States in the 1960s. There's no will we have to reinvent there. What Gandhi said was that there's an inner light within every man, woman, and child. He had gotten this a lot from the, from the American transcendentalists and the American Quakers. He said there's, a, there's an inner light within every man, woman, and child. And that inner light, which you and I know is compassion, love, and so forth, he said it heals not only personal relationships, but it also heals economic, social, and political relationships. And then what Martin Luther King said about Gandhi was that he was the first person in human history to take the ethic of love and turn it into a broad-scale social force for good. So basically what we're saying is, you and I, if, if a hungry child wandered in here, are you okay, honey? You need some food? All we're saying is, what about the millions of children who are hungry? You've got, you know, here, you and I are in Nevada. Half a million people in this state are hungry, including 129,000 children. What is love and politics? Feed them. Hello. You know, we passed a, um, Congress passed a um, child tax credit a year or so ago, almost two years, since Biden has been president. And it cut child poverty in half, which is great. Although for me as president, <laughs> Eliminate all of it, thank you. However, it did cut child poverty in half. The problem is, when it expired six months later, they didn't permanentize it. Love in politics means you put that before tax cuts. 
to your richest Americans who already have two yachts, three penthouses, and five planes. Well, there's so much more we could talk about, but it's hot. Thank you for being out Thank here you. in the Vegas heat with Thank me. Thank you. I'm getting used to it. And it's, it's such a pleasure just to speak with you. We got to spend time together over this past week. And again, we could do this for hours and hours. You are skilled in history. You're skilled in process. But you're skilled in humanity. And I think that's the principal skill set of a leader. And thank so you. I'm cheering you on. Oh, thank you so yeah. much. So you're, that means that we should all go to Marianne2024.com? You got it, Marianne2024.com. You've got events listed there. Any thank kind of you. words for our audience? Just thank you. Thank you. And thank you so much. This has been Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I'm Will Rucker. And as I always remind you, you are not just a drop in the ocean. You are the entire ocean in a drop. And what you do matters. So live compassionately. I'll see you next time.